everybody. Uh, if I've not met you, I'm Duck. Uh, generally, I'm right here, and I'm singing. And now I'm here. I feel like today I would like to start with prayer. I am so overwhelmed with gratitude and joy and, and humility and what we are going to communicate today that I would like if we would just join to prayer and invite the Lord to be pleased in our thoughts and our words. and So pray with me if you would. Jesus, I love you. I want to love you more. I pray that today we would see and savor you above all things. That we would rejoice in your coming. We would rejoice in your work. I pray that today that you would make things that are dead alive, that you would call people who are walking in darkness and light, Father, as you would write your name across the sky that we would see and rejoice. I pray that I can honor you in my preparation, and I pray that whatever I say, you would work through it. I ask that you would work through me or in spite of me but more than anything, that your name would be made great in this room. May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last several weeks, we have been dealing with the concepts that make up the gospel. Uh, Scott laid out for us the first portion of this, followed by Chris and then Josh came behind me, and while last week it seemed like Josh touched basically every narrative in the entire Bible, uh, I have the complete opposite pleasure, and that is to uh, expound for you the most famous verse in the entire Bible, and um, I would just confess that I would actually rather do what Josh did than do uh, what I'm about to do, uh, and it is... Um, not beyond me to want to speak. Um, I have never been lost for words in my entire life. If you know me, that's, you can ask this front row, actually. That's my whole family. They will tell you that if I could stop talking, they would love that. But what I would love to do is show you something so profound and wonderful. And I hope to do it in such a way that you are not actually hearing something new. Um, I don't want to show you anything that you may not have even heard before. What I want to help do is just show a facet of what we like to say is the simple gospel. That something has been done that we could never do. And then we just rejoice as a body. So over the last several weeks, we've been walking through this understanding of the gospel, that the gospel is not just a get out of hell free card. It's not just a We'll play another verse of just as I am, and once we check you off, you're good. Now go do whatever you want to do. It's not a once and done thing. It's actually what we feel is actually the very lenses that we place on our eyes that help us to see everything clearly and correctly. Does that make sense? We start with a good creation. God, in all of his infinite wisdom and goodness, decided that he would make something else that would actually reflect his glory. He makes a good earth, a good sky, a good sea, 
and then there's a fall. And that fall echoes through all things. Next comes the restoration of all things, but not until we get to redemption. My brain actually works uh, in a thousand different ways at once, but one of the, the best ways that I can deal with things is by putting it in pictures or like in a, in a kind of a sad Michael Bay movie. So what I would like to do is if everybody uh, in your screen of your imagination, if we could just go black. Let's do that if we can do it. Out of nothing, a good God says, let there be. And there is. And one of the first things he says is, let's bring light into this darkness. From the very start, God divides the darkness from the light. He puts all things together. Things are in harmony. They're set to be beautiful, to multiply. And man was created as sort of his crowning achievement, his glory. Man is good, guys. That is going to be probably the hardest thing for you to believe. I know a lot of people, and most of them are terrible. <laughs> but man is good. He rules and reigns with God, and we are sort of an ambassador on the earth. He then gives him a helper, a mate. Her name is Eve. Sin sadly enters the world at this point, and all that is right is right no more. Not only does the unveiled and naked intimacy that we enjoy with each other and God, not only is that broken, but then it filters into every other thing. God's will was that we would enjoy that with him and that we would go into the earth and we would express his creativity and his joy and his abundance. But that is fractured. We're sent to cultivate the earth and to bring forth fruit and multiply. And while that sounds amazing, the ground is now hard and it fights back against us. The several of us in this room that garden, which is just a weird hobby, I think, it feels a lot like work to me. The ground fights against you. That's why you go and buy someone else's dirt to put in your garden, because it's hard work. The ground fights you, and when you do get that one tiny tomato, you're so excited that you take a thousand pictures of it. But the Bible says that even the earth itself groans for restoration. Even the dirt knows something is wrong. Our relationships are fractured because we no longer see the image of God in other people. We see people and even our own children as an inconvenience. I'm going to let that sit there. We hide ourselves from true intimacy with other people because we say, if I show you who I really am, you won't hang out with me anymore. And I get it. I really do. We sew up fig leaf disguise in the latest fashions, and we just try to hide. Lastly, most importantly, our relationship with a good and holy God is broken. We no longer have communion with him. We cannot see him clearly. We feel like even if we do understand his words, there's still a wall up. There is literally a veil between the two of us. And that darkness that he spoke a division into seems to reign and rule in our lives over everything else. We know that he's there, but we don't know how to get to him. We sense that something is wrong. Through the ages, there's been efforts to fix this. There's actually different offices put into place that we could actually do that. They are the prophet, the priest, and the king. Those are called types in kind of the theological language, but we could just say prophet, priest, and king. 
And through the ages, there have been these men who have come and they have tried to bring light into this darkness. Picture someone in the complete darkness and they're trying to just strike stones together with their best efforts to make a fire that people would warm, that they would see, that they would be able to build, that they would be able to create life. And yet, in their best efforts, they can't do anything because all of their wood is wet. They're in the midst of a wind storm. And sometimes we get a little, man, that was close. Man, I think if I keep going, I think this will work. And you see a little spark in the darkness, and people's eyes are drawn to it. And they start to come, and then it's shown that that fire will also not do it. Occasionally, some hero would come. He would seem to get something going. Last week, we actually talked about a couple of them. We talked about King David, this valiant warrior poet king. I mean, if you could check a box for things that you think you'd like to dabble in, King David not only dabbled, but he did really well. He probably sang well. He was handsome. He could shoot a bow. He could do all kinds of things. I've never wrestled a lion but it sounds pretty great. When he came into power, people rejoiced in him. They said, this is the guy. This is him. I hope his kingdom never, never ends. But he would prove to be a violent man. He was emotional and he fell victim to his own desires. We have Jacob. I mean, this guy, God changed his name and named his entire people after him. You would think this guy's got it. Right? But he was a manipulator, he was a thief, and he was a coward. He would definitely not bring redemption to God's people. Moses, if you got a better name, throw it out. Moses, he led him into the promised land, or sort of. God spoke to him actually the most face-to-face of anybody that he'd ever spoken to. He handed him the stinking Ten Commandments, for goodness sakes. If you got a guy, it's Moses, right? Moses had a really bad temper. Moses actually lost out on the ability to walk into the promised land because of this temper. If these are our only hopes, no wonder people are walking away and despairing. Priests would offer sacrifices. They would have to atone for their own sins. Kings would lead God's people, but they would have a trouble ruling over their own desires. And prophets, they were subject to greed, y'all. They were subject to greed and cowardice because who wants to stand up here and tell you that you're wrong? These men, even in their goodness, could not atone for their own sins, let alone set the entire world correct. And then one day, the Lord stopped speaking. And for about 400 years, God was silent. We, on this side of the world, call that the intertestamental period. What hope that remained hung by a thread. The people who were called God's own began to lose faith. They began to lose their identity. And everyone started saying, what do we do? Has God abandoned us? How are we supposed to fix this? Has God forgotten his promises? I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life, but it's terrifying to think that I'm just out here on my own now and I've got to figure this out. And just like that, a star appeared, and a child is born. And the trajectory of all of history changes. 
I don't want to spoil it or anything, because that's what Chris is going to talk about next week, but we're going to get there. Pastor Ray Ortland once pointed out how crazy it is that God chose this means to redeem everything. Imagine you're God, you're in your God office, you're sitting in your God chair, and you're going, all right, this is how we're going to do it. We've got the calendar. This is how we're going to redeem everybody. We're going to get all these people together. We're going to move them around in a circle for like 40 or 50 years, and then we're going to do this thing, and then, boom, we'll redeem everybody. And then somebody goes, how are you going to do it? And he goes, well, I was thinking about a kid. How's that work? If you think about all of the evil in all of the world, it's probably pretty easy. Just turn on the news. You've got Satan and his legions and his devils and his demons. We've got, like, let's just imagine, like, a cosmic battleground for everything. Everybody loves those kind of big epic movies. Let's just say, like, you've seen um, The Return of the King. Lord of the Rings, anybody? We're supposed to reference that once every sermon. So here it is. (laughs) We've got all of darkness on this side, right? They're gross looking. On this side, what do we got? Just a baby. That is insane. Frankly, I mean, you say like, okay, we probably could have done a little better. We probably could have done a little better. And God says, no, no, no. It's this little boy. You guys saw my boy walking this morning. He's tiny. He's this big. I wish he would sleep so bad. But there's this little boy. And that's how God actually uses to redeem the world. In the midst of this long silence, a star shines on a little out-of-the-way town. This boy grows up on the fringes of big cities. And one day, while walking by the riverside, this wild man hollers out, Behold the Lamb of God! Takes away the sins of the world! What? That's insane! And while not everything changes all at once, something is different. Here's where we zoom in a little bit. It's fitting that our little scene here that we're about to read happens at night, because all around them, darkness reigns. It seems like that for us right now. But this man, who is a lawyer, a teacher of the law, his name is Nicodemus. You can call him Nick if you want to. I don't, he's not going to argue with you. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and I think there's a lot of symbolism there, but we're not going to really flesh that out. The way of Israel was becoming diluted. They were becoming oppressed on all sides. They had been held captive by numerous different people. They didn't even know who they were anymore. They didn't even call themselves by their own names. They called themselves by names that were given to them. I can't imagine how demoralizing that is. But this teacher comes to Jesus because he sees that something is different. So we'll pick up in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. It'll be back here, probably, if you have a Bible or something with a Bible on it. We're going to read a pretty good amount. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you still do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to you of things that we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Because Nicodemus was an expert in the law, he knows the extent of the debt to be paid to God. He knows and can recite all of the human efforts that we've covered just a fraction of. He knows the extent and the depths of sin and all of the things that need to be done to atone for those things. He then sees Jesus on the scene, and he goes, okay, something is going on with this guy. I need to figure it out. He's not exactly sure who he is, so he comes to him, and he says, hey, I, I know that God has sent you, but I'm not exactly sure why. And I am certain that he did not expect to be sitting there with the Messiah. Once they get talking, it's clear that no matter how smart Nicodemus is, he isn't picking up what Jesus is putting down. You know what I mean? <laughs> Jesus actually pokes at him a little bit, in verse 10, he's like, hey, you're, you're a teacher, right? I think you should get this. Let me, let me help you a little bit. But then Jesus comes and busts it wide open. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. In verse 14, he said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This reference just comes out of nowhere. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage. It's one of my favorites because of how weird it is. In the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, Israel is out there doing Israel stuff. They're biting each other with their words, their actions. They're judging God in the way that he decides to rule over them. And God sends sweet judgment to them in the form of snakes. And I never want to be around snakes that are doing anything let alone what they're doing. In the midst of the night, these fiery serpents come, and they begin biting basically everyone in the camp. And people run to Moses, and they say, God, could you not do anything for us? All of us are dying here. You get bit, you're gone. That's how it goes. And Moses intercedes for them, and the Lord says, if you will craft the image of a serpent out of bronze... Put it on a stick up in the middle of the camp, and anybody who looks upon it, their life will be spared. 
that's a weird story. I have a problem with that, honestly. Because it's weird. Are you serious? Put a snake on a stick. No. Anyway, I am not a teacher of the law. I've not been studying this for my entire life. And like Nicodemus, I cannot recite the first five books of the Bible from memory. But Nicodemus, his mind would have gone, all right, there's something that Jesus is saying that I really need to understand here. For most of Israel, (laughs) I skipped something. (laughs) There are a lot of times where God rains down his judgment, and he does it justly. We have a really skewed view of judgment. My judgment is fast, it's ferocious, and it's really sad because I don't understand the fullness and every ramification that it has. I scream at my kids, and then I feel really bad about it. I'm snarky with my wife, and then I feel really bad about it. I yell at people in traffic, and then I feel bad about it. When God executes judgment, he actually does it rightly, which is insane, because I don't have any groundwork for that. I don't understand what that looks like. God somehow, when he rains down judgment, also seems to have someone who steps in the way. There's a mediator. We could even call it a priest. He steps in the way, and oftentimes that priest stands in the middle of the people and God's wrath. And for some reason, God listens, and he shows mercy. We're going to get into more of that. But as Jesus tells this, and Nicodemus is hearing this thing about the serpent, and it's hung on the tree, Nicodemus is most likely hearing this phrase also. Cursed is anyone who hung on a tree. There was a portion in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, if you want to look that up, where it's describing that if anyone is hung on a tree to be executed, that they had to be taken down by a certain time because it was unclean for them to be done. That too, that was a terrible sentence. I'm real sorry about that. But in the midst of all this, and Jesus basically setting the stage and saying that there will be something lifted up, that this thing has already been done, and I'm coming in the same way, He's then setting the stage for now the most famous verse in the entire Bible. If you grew up kind of like I did and didn't really watch sports, there was something that I knew was going to happen, and there was going to be this guy in a clown wig and face paint, and he was going to be holding a sign, and it said, John 3.16. Didn't you guys grow up that way? Anybody seen that? I was going to put it on the screen. I didn't think anybody would get it, and I'm I'm glad that I didn't because that didn't go well. But let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, we can go. (laughs) You see, Nicodemus already knew something that was wrong. He knew that there was something wrong with him. He knew there was something wrong in in the world. But he was lost on what to do about it. He knew that he stood rightly in a place of condemnation. But here comes Jesus talking about this bronze snake. Jesus is saying literally in the same way that this serpent was lifted up, I will be lifted up. The reason that this snake was lifted up was that people would come in the midst of their death and their suffering and they would place their trust in something that had been on their behalf. Jesus is saying something about his purpose in coming to earth. 
For most of Israel and its offshoots, and even for a lot of us, we have this concept of what the Savior would look like. That God's going to send this conquering king. He's going to be totally on our agenda. He's going to love everything that we love, and he's going to destroy everybody else. Israel usually would think that he was going to come and establish a new kingdom, and they were going to get some kickback for that. And I think we probably think that way as well. The modern era has its own ideas of why Jesus came. He was to teach us some things about how to be nice, how to live a good, abundant life right now. And while I think we can learn a lot from him, Jesus seems to think that a lot of his mission had to come down to laying down his own life. In verse 14, we are presented with the phrase, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, this lifted up verse is problematic because a lot of times we are taught that the phrase lifted up is actually pertaining to us just saying good things about him. But it seems like John, who repeats it three times in the gospel, actually associates him being lifted up with actually Jesus' crucifixion. In chapter 12, he goes further to add that his lifting up would actually serve as the means by which the Father would receive glory. So it was the Father's will to crush him because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And through the redemption of his people, God is glorified. Jesus lifts the Father's love as his primary reason that he should come and save the lost, not to condemn us, but to actually save us. Jesus came and lived a sinless life to forgive what Adam failed to do. His righteousness then becomes our own. And at the cross, he exchanges our sin for his righteousness. He thus laid his life down to pay the debt that we could not pay. And this puts us no longer in the wrong standing with God. In Christ, we are now justified and righteous. Guys, that's amazing news. Charles Spurgeon made a point about how undoubtedly some would mock at the image of the bronze serpent in the desert. If you think about it, it is kind of silly. If I get bitten by a snake, I'm going to hope that there's something amazingly scientific about the way that I get fixed, right? If I'm bitten by a snake and someone says, I have a poster in my car and I'll put it up and you look at it and it'll be fine, I'm going to kill you after I figure out what's wrong. If you imagine at this point, you've been now very upset with Moses and you say, can you not do something you've interceded for us so very many times? And he goes, I've got it. Somebody's making a snake. You would say, okay, is there not something more sophisticated we could do? Could we not just act better and God will then feel bad about what he did and we'll feel bad about what he did and then we'll continue on our way? Is there not uh, like a shot we could get? Is there not a medication we can take? Is there a song we can sing? Is there another way than you put this thing up in our way because I just got bitten by it? I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it. And I feel like the cross has the very same effect. We go, what does this have to do with anything? We have the cross. It's on a necklace. It's on my jeans. It's on the back of my car. And you go, yeah, Jesus came and he was nice. What does the cross have to do with anything? Jesus seems to think it actually has a lot to do with everything. He says, I actually came to be lifted up on your behalf. It seems fitting that the image of the very thing causing the people's very own death would be the image that would save them. In the case of Israel, it was the serpent. 
in our case, God put on the flesh of a man. Christ came and put on human form because what kills us is our own sin. He came to pay a debt perfectly once and for all, and then he rose for us, assuring our resurrection. He did this for love and for his glory. And he did it because, as he says in verse 18, the world stands condemned already. If he does nothing, we're out, man. The word is death. Welcome to church. It begs the question, how would you handle this situation? Let's imagine you're God, which we can't really do very well. But if it were up to you, how would you save everybody? I probably wouldn't, honestly. I would just start over. But that's because I don't have his character. I'm not fully good. I'm not fully loving. I'm actually pretty far the other way. If you created heaven and earth and you created these wonderful little people, these dirt creatures, and these dirt creatures start shaking their hand at you and flipping you the bird and spitting on you and be like, I decide what I want. Man, I would smite you so hard. (laughs) But God's answer is, I'm going to send you a redeemer. We are guilty of cosmic treason. Guys, the penalty for treason used to at least be execution. I don't know what it is now. It's probably just not as bad. But what we're owed here is not just a slap on the wrist. What we're owed here is death. I think we make really light of that because it's not super fun to preach. It's not drawing in crowds. It's not your best life now kind of situation. It's like a, hey, you're wrong. We do love you, but you're still wrong. God's solution is, I'm going to fix it. And literally from Genesis chapter 3, literally within the same breath that he's spelling out the extent of the fall of man, that you have messed up and you have messed up and the ground will fight you and you will fight each other and you will fight for me and you will run away. He says, I'm going to bring you help. And from you, I'm actually going to bring a redeemer. And while evil will seem like it has its day, the one that I will send will crush the serpent's head. And then you know what God does? He covers their shame. He himself makes them their first real garments. If we look back at John 3.16, we're actually going to land the plane pretty quick. We're going to do this very quickly. And we will beat all of the Baptists to lunch. If we look back at John 3.16, we can say all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved it so, 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 so much that he gave his son. Now, who is the world, guys? That's everybody, all of them. You and her and them and the people you're mad at. God loved all of those so much that he sent his only son. This is the kind of character that I cannot do anything with. I have two sons, and I would not give either one of them for you. I'm just saying that. As much as I love my sons, I want them to be a little quieter at night, but I would never give them to somebody else. I would never send them to be raised by someone that I couldn't be there all the time. 
I certainly wouldn't want them to be humiliated. I certainly wouldn't give them to you if I knew that ultimately you're going to let them get killed. And God's character is, he goes, I love you so much that I'm going to give my own flesh to fix everything that's wrong. The grief, the doubt, the fear, the anger, all of those things I'm going to take on myself that eventually all things will be restored. The next line I love to keep the Old English or the Middle English version of that is, whosoever believeth. I love that. It sounds funnier, but I love it. Guys, whoever would believe, that is again any one of you. The gift is extended to all people. No matter how far off you think you are, no matter how close you think you are, the gift is extended to you. And if you believe, you're in. That is justification by faith alone. He is saying, I'm going to do all of the work. There is nothing for you to earn. Your best efforts are what got you here in the first place. I have the credit and I'm going to give it to you. He is also saying, however, that on the other side, if you are not trusting and believing in him, that you are not actually with him. And guys, that's hard cheese, man. That is a stumbling block for sure. Because what we could not do, that great divide, he has bridged that gap for us. And he would say, I'm inviting you in. But if you do not come with me, you're not in. That's tough to stand up here and say that. And sometimes it's even tougher when you're not standing in front of a big crowd, but you're standing in front of somebody that you know. And you're pleading with them, lay down your death and walk in life. He's not asking for a complex faith. He's saying, in this moment, I want you to put all of the trust that you can muster in everything that you know. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't have to figure out how exactly this works. What I'm saying to you right now is, what do you know about me, and can you trust me well enough that I will keep you into the next thing? And we walk forward. That's literally a prayer I pray every week with communion. And as we walk into it, we'll work on that. But guys, what does this do for us as we're offered this invitation in a place that we really shouldn't be? What do we do with that? When we're presented with the cross, we have a decision to make. When we're presented with what Jesus did on our behalf, we have a decision to make. And once we make that decision, it then filters into everything else. And while Chris is going to do a lot of work on that next week, we still have to think about, how does this actually affect me? How does it affect our relationships with each other? How does it affect how merciful we are on ourselves? Guys, forgiving ourselves is actually a big thing. Because there's stuff that I think about all the time that I did that I wish I really had nothing to do with. But man, the good news is that all the lights are turned on anyway. There's no for, nowhere for us to hide. The Psalms say, if I go to the depths, then you're there. If I went to the highest places, you're there. There's nowhere that I could go where I am not in your full sight. And so the good news is, man, there is life to be had. 
And when we allow that to play out in our lives, then we treat other people kindly. We have mercy, we have mercy on our super annoying neighbor. We're more patient with our children. Because we say, hey man, so much has been done for me. I want to show you what that looks like. It's not just a being nice campaign. It is conviction that you could not own your standing with God and that God did everything on your behalf. And this should produce gratitude and worship. When we sing these songs, they come out of our mouths differently because we realize we didn't do it. Oh, that's so good. I love it when we have people over and they decide to help us with the dishes. You know, I love when you come over, but I love when you leave. And I love it even more when you clean it up. Jesus has already done all of the cleanup and he's set the best table. He's just inviting you into it. Will you extend that to other people? I think that's the question that we have. When we see what's been done on our behalf, it really changes so much about who we are and how we live the rest of our lives. I think I'd like to move into communion. This is a wonderful situation for that. We do this every single week. Uh, Matt, you can start coming up here if you want to. This, I think, is actually my favorite part of the whole service. Uh, I have a very unique position, kind of like Matt does, where I get to sing and I get to speak. I spend more time on this stage than almost anybody other than Chris. And so I get to see people come to this table. It was spelled out for me a bunch of years ago that a lot of us grew up in a situation where if you didn't have everything in order, you sometimes were not welcome to come to the table. And I don't know if that rings true for everybody. Uh, and I've found myself even wanting to say that to my own kids. Like, you can just get up. You can just go. If you don't like what I got, you can go. But Jesus invites us to his table. And he says, if you'll come, I have it for you. My body and my blood, there is enough for you. No one is disqualified from this message. And that's so wonderful. I'm going to pray. Lord, we open the doors and the windows of our soul and we ask you to rush through, blowing out those things that steal our joy in you. We want to make some room in the next few minutes to confess our sins, Father, to come to you and express our dependence on you and what you've done for us, God. We want to confess things that we have done and things that we have left undone. We want to invite you to have mercy on us and help us to have mercy on ourselves.